And one of the privileges we have as God's children is to hear his word. And so I invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. 23 is kind of at the end, the middle of a passage. Um, Luke 7, 18 through 23. Uh, Our text this morning focuses on something that I find really hard to do. Wait and rest in Jesus. Uh, It's hard to wait for Jesus to bring healing. It's hard to wait for Jesus to bring answers. It's hard to wait for Jesus to act and save. And because it's hard to wait, it's hard to rest. And by rest, I mean trust. Uh, To know deep in your bones that Jesus has not overlooked you. That he hasn't left you or stopped working in your life. Uh, My friends, the difficulty of resting and waiting is not unknown to Jesus. Uh, He isn't surprised by it. He doesn't hate us for it. He isn't even angered by it. He understands it. And because he understands it and because he loves us, he helps us through it. And what you're going to see in our text this morning is John the Baptist presenting Jesus with his own struggles of waiting and resting. And you're going to see Jesus respond with a very powerful reminder that Jesus is always working and is always with us. Whether uh, he's producing dramatic changes in the broad light of summer or producing hidden changes in the dead of winter, Jesus is always, always, always working in us. And we all need that word this morning, I can tell. Uh, So let's read Luke chapter 7. 18 to 23, so that we can hear Jesus respond with encouragement to John's understandable and familiar frustration and doubt about who Jesus is and what he's doing. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, which so powerfully describes our own experiences of walking with you and so wonderfully gives us your answers to our own struggles in our pilgrimage to heaven with Jesus. But Lord, we know that uh, your description of our life and your answers to the struggles in our life will mean nothing to us unless your spirit is at work in us with your word to accomplish your purposes. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us all now, 
to give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist is one of those people who's so devout and had such a profound relationship with Jesus that you would never expect him to doubt. For those who don't know, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, before the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to miraculously give birth to Messiah, he first, Gabriel first, appears to the priest Zechariah and tells him that his wife Elizabeth, who's Mary's cousin, is going to give birth to a son and her son's job will be to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Gabriel even tells Zechariah to name him John, which means God is gracious. You know how kids sometimes tell you, ask you stories about like questions about like, hey, tell me again how I got my name. Imagine that story. Well, there was an angel. His name was Gabriel and he showed up out of the blue. We're also told in Luke that when Mary and Elizabeth were both pregnant, Mary went and visited Elizabeth at her house. And when Mary walked into the house, John still in her, his mother's womb, somehow knew that Jesus, who was still in Mary's womb, was there. And he starts leaping for joy in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb. And you think, poor Elizabeth. Uh, for, from the womb, John has this real deep knowledge of who Jesus is. And because of that knowledge, John has a real and deep knowledge of who he is. He is the prophet who is going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. And so John dedicates his life to that task. He becomes a Nazarite, meaning he vowed himself to the Lord's work at the expense of everything else. Uh, becoming a Nazarite was kind of like becoming a medieval monk. Uh, you gave up so much of normal life so that you could dedicate yourself to fulfilling your vows to God. And so John gives up food except for locust and honey. He gives up marriage. He gives up children. He gives up financial security and stability from a full-time job so that he can go into the wilderness and preach and call people to repentance and get them ready to meet Jesus with open arms and open hearts. John knows who he is and he knows who Jesus is. And we know that because in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist is the first person the first person who tells people, Jesus, that guy right there, he's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no doubt or confusion in John's mind. He knows who Jesus is. In fact, when Jesus presents himself to John to be baptized, what does John tell Jesus? He says, no, Lord, it is you who needs to baptize me. John knows who Jesus is. And then don't forget, after John baptizes Jesus, what happens? The heavens are ripped open. The Holy Spirit lands on Jesus' shoulder like a dove while John is standing right there. And he hears God, as we read in Matthew, thunder from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's hard to imagine someone with more reasons to be confident in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, all of us here, 
who have been walking with Jesus for a time, we all have reasons to be confident in Jesus. We have our own experiences of Jesus' salvation and presence. We have, of course, the profound testimony of the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God. But we don't have John's reasons. We don't have angels descending to announce our birth. We didn't see God rip open the heavens and descend on the shoulders of Jesus and say, this is the one, listen to him. So why does John send his disciples to ask Jesus in verse 19, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another one? It's because of what's going on in John's life when verse 18 happens, where we're told that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this here, probably because he assumes that his readers would have already read Matthew and Mark's Gospels, which were written ahead of time. But at this point in his life, John the Baptist is in prison. And he was put there for calling out sin in King Herod's life, who King Herod, while a puppet king of Israel, is nonetheless the king of Israel. And John was doing his duty as a prophet, calling the king of Israel to repentance, and he was jailed for it. Uh, he's, we don't know how long he was in jail, but he spent, we know for sure, weeks, maybe months, not eating locusts and honey, but stale and, or moldy bread. In his preaching, which had led thousands of people to repentance and was such a vibrant ministry that people asked John if he was the Messiah, his preaching didn't move Herod one inch towards Jesus. And so you have to imagine John the Baptist is lonely, he's hungry, and he's probably feeling very ineffective. And then verse 18, his disciples come and they tell him, Jesus has healed the servant of a centurion with a word, and that he raised a dead boy to life again. That's the story immediately preceding, those two stories immediately precede our passage. John hears about these amazing gifts of freedom and life that Jesus is giving to others and is doing for others. He's doing it for strangers, but here he is, Jesus' cousin, his prophet, and Jesus isn't doing anything for him. And John's faith is shaken. And you can hear the doubt and the worry behind his question to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we expect another? Like, are you really the Messiah who sets his people free? Did I get it wrong? Did, did I dedicate my life to you for no reason? Uh, in, in pointing people to you and saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, did I set them up for the same kind of abandonment that I am now feeling? My friends, isn't this kind of thing so familiar to us? Like, we see or we hear about Jesus working powerfully and openly in the lives of other people. We hear about illnesses being healed, uh, relationships being repaired. We hear stories about addicts suddenly being set free from addiction. We see people who went from jobless and they pray to Jesus and suddenly they have jobs that are much better and more lucrative than our own, right? Instagram shows us all the things Jesus is doing for everyone else, but not apparently for us. We're still lonely. 
We're stuck feeling ineffective. Why isn't Jesus giving us the same help? And don't we wonder, have I placed my faith in the wrong Savior? It may be even more frightening for us. We wonder, as I'm sure John was at this point, have I given others false hope by telling them the trust in Jesus? So this is why I said this text is all about waiting and resting. It's hard to wait for Jesus when you see him acting openly for others, but not for you. It's hard to rest and trust in Jesus when he doesn't appear to be acting on your behalf, when he is obviously acting on the behalf of other people. Jesus understands what's going on in John the Baptist's heart and head. And I want you to notice that uh, after John's disciples ask him John's question in verse 20, Jesus doesn't immediately reply. Also notice he doesn't argue. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't shame him for forgetting God's announcement from heaven that he was there for, or for forgetting the family stories about the angel Gabriel's appearance to his mom and Jesus' mom. No, what Jesus clearly does is invite them to follow along as he does his thing. And I know the text doesn't say that Jesus said, here, follow after me, but at the same time, they couldn't have seen all these things unless they'd been following Jesus. And this inclusion of John's disciples in Jesus' ministry is important, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, But first, I want us to understand what Jesus is showing them and why he gives them then this message to go with those miracles that he does. So in verse 21, we're told, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus shows them his messianic work. Uh, Because what does the Old Testament say? That the Messiah, the Christ, that's the Greek translation of Messiah, the Savior of God's people. What does it say that the Messiah will do? Well, Isaiah and Jeremiah are very clear. The Messiah will give sight to the blind so that they can see with their own eyes the blessings of God as they shine out from creation and from the faces of God's people and even as they behold Jesus from the face of God himself. We're told the Messiah will defend our lives so that we can live in community together. We're told he'll beat death so that we can enjoy life in community forever. That he'll cast out Satan so that we won't be ensnared by lies that threaten to tear us from God and from each other. You see, the miracles Jesus does in verse 21 all center on the way that God defends and restores the Sabbath rest of life and delight and communion with God and with God's people. And then Jesus tells him in verse 22, he says this, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now think again about what John's fear was. Are you the Messiah or not? Have I been pointing my people to the wrong person? Have I dedicated my life to the wrong person? Have I told people that I love to dedicate their lives to a false savior? 
to this demonstration of his messianic mission, along with this entire reply, which is all just a bunch of citations from the prophets telling people what the Messiah will do. This is all meant to assure John, like, cousin, you haven't messed up. You haven't gotten it wrong. The people who put their faith in me will and do receive the Sabbath rest of God. They will be saved. They will be helped. And even death cannot stop me from giving them the life of God. That is such a good word. All the things you expected me to do for others, I am doing for them. You're not a failure. You didn't get it wrong. Uh, Your ministry of witness has meaning and has produced fruit that is eternal because you appointed people to me. And my friends, we need to hear this kind of thing too, don't we? Uh, We need to hear stories about Jesus being faithful to the people that we pointed to Jesus. Uh, We need the stories of Jesus' faithfulness from the Bible, and we also need the story of Jesus' faithfulness from our own lives. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus brought John's disciples along to watch so that they could tell him what they heard and saw with their own eyes. You can, I sort of imagine them going back to John and saying, hey, John, do you remember my neighbor? What's a good Old Testament name? Hezekiah? Yeah, Jesus healed his broken arm so that he could hold his baby. I saw that with my own eyes. Do you remember the homeless guy down at the corner restaurant? Like, yeah, I saw Jesus walk up to him. I saw him heal him and give him the gospel and bring him for the first time in 30 years into a community that loves him. Another disciple says, yeah, I saw Jesus uh, cast out demons. I saw Jesus forgive sin and take my two uncles who hated each other and reconcile them together. Like It's good to hear the faithfulness of Jesus to others so that we can be confident that by sending people to Jesus, we are, in fact, sending them to the Savior who will act and who will deliver them. My friends, we need to be intentional about this. We need to be uh, a people who share what Jesus is doing openly and with excitement, if it's exciting, because we need the kind of confidence that John needed and that Jesus gave to him. But that's not the only thing that Jesus has his disciples say to John, is it? Uh, He ends with this in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, excuse me. So I read a sermon on this verse this week, uh, and it was uh, super terrible. Uh, John comes off as this, Uh, ignorant, foolish doubter who should really know better. And Jesus comes off as this super arrogant, like angry, like how could you not believe in me kind of savior. Uh, And so I deleted the sermon because it was mine. Uh, It's the last time I preached on this passage, I preached like that. Uh, When I preached on this in the past, I just didn't understand that Jesus chooses his words based on the person he's talking to. Jesus knows that John has a deep and profound knowledge of the Bible. Not everyone has that. And not everyone is a prophet, right? 
John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever, as Jesus tells us in the next section. So the way Jesus makes this point to John isn't necessarily the way he would have made it when talking to the centurion or the Samaritan woman or even Peter necessarily. And we can read this as much harsher than it is if we assume that the thing Jesus says to John is the thing he would say to all of us in our situation. And it's what I did, and it's wrong. This is not a harsh rebuke. It's actually a very gentle reminder of the way that God works in the life of his people. So what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding John of a bunch of biblical texts in the prophets that all center around this difficult idea that God is still working in us even when we are suffering, lonely, and in danger. As I put it at the beginning, the idea that God can be at work in us and sometimes is maybe even more at work at, at us in the dead of winter than he is in the bright light of summer is a hard thing for us to grasp. And I chose that metaphor because God will use the seasons he's built into creation to explain how he works in our lives. There is a time in our life for the spring of new birth. And there is a time for the full blossoming life of summer. There's a time for the transition to fall where an activity starts to wane and life starts to slow down. And there's a time for winter when God is still working, but outwardly we can feel bare and dry and exposed. And you can find all of those seasons and all of their meaning referenced in the prophets in a whole bunch of, whole bunch of ways. And of course, you can especially see it in Ecclesiastes, right? For everything there is a season, time for everything under the sun. You can find it in Paul's letters where he talks about being ready in season and out of season. That's not just a great metaphor he came up with that's poetic. He's talking about the way God's word works that he learned from the prophets. Not only with seasons though, you can also find this idea in the prophets of God working in the light versus God working in the night or in the darkness. And, and I, I know this isn't a prophet, but Psalm 1811 is a really easy place to, say that, place to see this idea where God says that he comes clothed in darkness and his ways are hidden in the night. Now in the prophets, when Israel was getting ready to go into exile and she was preparing to enter a period of darkness and nighttime and winter, her faith was offended uh, literally, the Greek word used there means to stumble, which I like that translation better. Their faith stumbled. How is it possible that God can be at work in the winter? Like, how can I rest in God when I'm sitting in the dark feeling bare and dry and exposed? Like, what can it possibly mean to live with Jesus out of the country that was my home in safety? What can God possibly mean that he is there and not here anymore, as we saw in Jeremiah? And you have to wonder, at least I do, how many times John had called the crowds to wait in their own hour of exposure and darkness during the Roman occupation because the Messiah was coming. Hold on. God is not finished. Yes, you're oppressed. Yes, you're angry. Yes, you're scared. Yes, you're poor. Yes, you're in danger. But the Messiah is coming. God is not done. God is here, he's always been here, he will be here, and he's coming in glory. 
And so when Jesus tells John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, or better, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because of me, what he's reminding John of is all of these passages that he's preached to others for years where God's people struggle to wait on Jesus and to rest in him while they are in the dark, while they are in the winter, while they are in the wilderness. Jesus is saying, John, my cousin, blessed are you if you remember that I'm with you even in jail. Blessed are you if you remember that I'm at work in you even when you feel like an inept failure because you preached thousands of people to repentance but can't preach Herod to repentance. Blessed are you when you wait on me and rest in me even as their time of winter has changed to a springtime of new life while your summertime of energetic life has transformed to a period of winter rest. See, Jesus is helping John see that he's just in a different season than these people are, but he's still with him. He says, I am with you. I am at work in you. Wait, rest, it'll be okay. And we know that this encouraged John and that this wasn't like this harsh rebuke because John never sends messengers again. In fact, Matthew tells us that John continued preaching to Herod, Herod right up until the day that he was murdered by Herod. Which, by the way, if you want to know what it means to preach the word in season and out of season, that's what it means. You preach the word when it's obviously bearing fruit, and you preach the word when it's not obviously bearing fruit, because God is at work winter, spring, summer, fall. And all that means that John the Baptist didn't lose heart. He didn't lose his faith. He didn't lose his, lose his faith even though Herod uh, didn't repent. He didn't lose his faith that even Herod could be restored by Jesus. John the Baptist heard what Jesus was doing for others in the bright light of summer and was reminded of what Jesus was doing in his own darkness of winter and he rested in Christ and he acted faithfully and he waited for his season of life to change. Uh, we're going to talk more about how to rest and wait on Jesus in uh, the coming weeks. Maybe next week, maybe the week after we'll start. I haven't totally decided uh, which passage of Luke is next. Uh, but for today, let me end with, with this. When you're in a difficult place and you see others being liberated, healed, praised, it's natural to wonder if you put your faith in the right person. And it's also not surprising if that wondering starts to lead you to fear that you've wasted your life on something that was ultimately an illusion. Uh, you thought that what you were doing was changing the world and it was helping people, but really it seems to be less than you thought and maybe it now feels empty. Now, I know a bunch of ministers who have experienced this and now they're former ministers. Uh, I know a bunch of Christians who left the faith because they felt like this, all because they didn't have a theology that God is giving in the Bible of seasons of life with God and, and a way to envision and see and understand how God is present and in what ways in different seasons and times and light and darkness and winter, summer, spring and fall that repeat so often in our lives. And what Jesus is showing us here and is calling us to show each other 
is that our life is not wasted if it's spent pointing people to him no matter what season we're in. Jesus is not going to fail the people that we point to him, and Jesus is not going to fail us either. And here he's reminding us that uh, there are different seasons in life with the Lord. There are seasons of great change, revitalization, life, excitement. There are seasons of birth. There are seasons of waiting and resting in difficulty. There are even seasons of death. In all of this, the kingdom of God is always advancing, but the way it advances in the world and in our lives isn't exactly the same in every place and in the life of every person. And so because that's true, we need to help each other focus on the presence of Christ as he appears in each season. We need to encourage each other with a reminder that Jesus has different seasons for each of us as individuals and for us as a church. Uh, remember there's a spring and a winter. Right? These seasons are necessary for proper growth and for the strengthening of our faith with Christ. And whether we're in a summer season right now of vibrant growth or a winter season of waiting, a transition period to life in spring or a transition to rest and fall, uh, whether we're in the bright light of day or the darkness of night, Jesus is working in us. Jesus is with us. He's not failing us. And blessed are we who wait and rest in him and encourage each other to do the same. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that when we struggle with doubt, that you don't respond with anger or disgust, but with comfort and help. Please help us to understand the way you are at work in us in different seasons of our lives. Please help us to grow in our ability to rest and wait in you. And please help us to grow in our ability to encourage one another with stories of your faithfulness to each other. And please uh, help us to help each other see your continuing, never-failing faithfulness to us. Because we want to be a church that faithfully loves and follows you no matter what season we're in. And we want to be a church that helps others rest in you and follow you no matter what season they're in. Uh, please bless these desires in Jesus' name. In whose name we pray. Amen.